This episode is all about questions. Why are we here? Who was here before us? What kind of stories do we tell about the world around us? And how can we change from seeing the world as something to be studied to something that can be acted upon and changed? First-year educator Tiri Mukabo Uwilingi Imana, now in his second year at Winooski Middle High School, joins me on the show to talk about place-based curriculum design, exceeding standards through local investigations. The author, Amy Demarest, is herself a longtime Vermont educator who has touched both my guest and I deeply. We're big fans. Plus, why you absolutely need to spin Google Earth with your students just once. Their reactions may surprise and delight you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is Vermont Ed Reads, books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Let's chat. Thanks for joining me, Thierry. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, let me start by saying thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Um, so, myself, where do I start? You know, I, I feel like it's, it's appropriate to start by maybe giving a visual to people who are listening. Um, I am a black man uh, from uh, Rwanda, a tiny little country in Central East Africa. Uh, it's sandwiched between the Congo and Tanzania. And um, I have uh, four siblings, three brothers and one sister. Um, born in Rwanda and I left when I was six um, because of the war that happened there. And I left with my family. I was lucky enough to live with my family. And we became refugees in Congo and Zambia for a total of six years before we came to the U.S. where we began our lives in Buffalo, New York. Um, so I did my high school there at the College Preparatory High School. That's a private Jesuit school. Uh, where I was one of a very few uh, black kids in a majority white school, it's like 98% white. And I think they were trying to reach out to kids from Buffalo, um, because most of the other students were coming from the suburbs, or were driving in an hour, two hours. So this is an old school, a very... Uh, um, a school that's been around since like the late 1800s. And so, sons and son of boys school. Sons, it's a multi generational school. Kids go there. Their dads went there. Their grand, their grandparents, grandfathers went there. And so people drive from quite far. Um, so that was an interesting experience. And then I uh, left Buffalo for Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, where I studied electrical engineering. Um, and I'd always had the passion for or at least I thought a lot about someday going back to my home country, or at least um, Zambia, which was the last African country that I lived in before leaving the continent. I you know, thought about how I might go back, how I might give back. You know, uh, Maybe it's a survivor's, not remorse, but mindset of I survived for a reason, you know, what's my responsibility? Um, and um, so after, after Stanford, I, you know, long story short, I found myself in D.C. doing engineering work, software engineering work. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm, after, the recession, after the recession, I finally decided to 
dive into what I thought was going to be my life's work. And, and this was, you know, making, trying to revolutionize um, um, education. And given the background that I'd acquired through my undergrad and through my studying, you know, I really thought that technology would have, would play a big role in, you know, democratizing education, bring education to more people and, and quality education. Um, and so this took me down the path of entrepreneurship and you know that was five years and somehow led me to Vermont where I came here for a startup uh, that we can talk about later maybe um, and when that didn't work out after I'd been here for two two months you know I scrambled around for a few months and then luckily came across uh, a STEM position that was open at Winooski middle high school and uh, so that's where I'm at I just finished my first year teaching engineering. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, I like to say engineering instead of STEM um, because I think for students it makes them stand up a little bit. They sit straighter and think, oh, we're, we're doing engineering. Uh, but it's really nothing more than problem solving, mm-hmm. uh, but using the tools available to us to solve big, complex problems. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about my second year. Um, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It seems to me you're the perfect guest to talk about this book, and I didn't even realize why. But um, And I'm thinking about it in two ways. One is that place has been so important in your life, and, and you've experienced places, so many places deeply, and had to leave places that were um, a place that was so the, the home place of your family. Mm-hmm. So you have this lens or perspective on place that yeah. I think is really interesting. And the other is that um, as an engineer, I love that you're using place-based learning in engineering, and I think it's a slant we don't often think about. We think about um, social studies more, I think. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Same. Uh, And just to to talk books with you. So let's start by just asking, what are you reading right now? What's on your bedside table? Right. Um, well, just tell me one. What's the one? Just one, because I have a whole list. I can see it's that. It's overflowing. <laughs> uh, I was taking pictures of the books that I have on my bedside table. Well, um, you know, I suppose the one that I then <laughs> should highlight is Worldly, Worldly Philosophers. And this is a book by... Um, Someone was them. I won't remember right now, um, but he's um, uh, a political economist uh, at the New School in New York, um, and um, yeah, worldly philosophers is about great thinkers who have shaped our world in in a sort of invisible ways, but very powerful ways. I'm, and I'm talking about people like Adam Smith and. And Keynes, who was philosophy, essentially uh, admitted that capitalism left to its own devices, exploits and um, leads to things like the Great Depression and, and so a big role for the, for the government to step in. Uh, people like Karl Marx, who've studied and, and sort of critiqued in an academic sense capitalism and how it works. Um, this is, it's, it's, it, it's a budding uh, understanding, learning capitalism is a budding uh, passion of mine. Uh, and it's not budding anymore, I think it's fairly deep. And it, it really blossomed at Winooski uh, when I left the world of technology 
and talking to teachers about what they could be doing and the world of ideas and innovation into the world of being the one receiving my students and seeing them every day and seeing them struggle with elements of poverty um, and how they would come to me and would create a safe space and would talk and would empower each other and then they would go home and have to deal with their stuff and then come back. You know, and I began really thinking about the larger forces operating on my kids. Uh, and everything seemed to point back to our economic system that seems to widen inequities uh, and exploit people. Um, and with a government that I think has abdicated its responsibility to making sure that this system that generates a lot of wealth, which it does, that that wealth is distributed equitably in society. So that's, that's, that's one book, and it's an obsession uh, of mine. I feel like you're breaking a, a big stereotype that mm -hmm. engineers don't read philosophy, right? Uh, and you're the humanist engineer. Oh, so that's... I, I um, appreciate you sharing what's on your shelf. Um, listeners, I will embed some photos into the transcript of Thierry's uh, many bookcases and all the things he's reading. He's a busy guy this summer, clearly. Um, so let's jump into this tiny little book that you yeah. and I agreed through text. Is mm -hmm. like you could almost read the whole thing aloud. It's so quotable. That's fine. Um, and I want to start just by quoting the dedication, which I don't usually do. Um, Amy writes, Amy Demarest, our author, writes in the dedication, this book is dedicated to all the teachers who pursue ways to authentically engage students in the world as it is and might be. I feel like you've already given us some context about who you are and what you bring to your classroom, but I'm wondering if you could expand a little more on what you think it means to engage students in the world both as it is and as it could be. Right. Um, yeah, so as I, as I think about that, what comes to mind is that we do, we do need to help our, our kids see the world as it is. You know, I, um, when I think back to the way I studied history in high school, we were in a classroom and we studied from a textbook. Um, um, and, you know, and, you know, I never really once questioned who wrote this book and what's in it and what's not in it and why are things, why were some things left out and some things included. That kind of critical thinking was not part of my education. Um, and so seeing the world as it is, um, you know, by reading the world as text, something that we'll talk about later, you know, really opens, you know, makes the space within a learning environment for students to pursue curiosities that they have. And so if we're walking down, uh, walking downtown and we see, you know, some... Some, something that alludes to the Civil War, for example, you know, with my students. And you have a question about something like that. And that can go in many different ways. And the different students that I have in my class are going to ask different questions that speak to where they're coming from, right, and their sense of place, how they see themselves in Buffalo, per se, if that's where I'm teaching. And so, so there is an aspect of seeing the world as it is and not filtered through anyone else but your own lens and your own experience. And then the other critical part that I think I'm learning to appreciate as a teacher that I hadn't before is that it's not enough to see the world as it appears. You know, I think 
our responsibility to our students and if we're going to be the adults in the room uh, or the people who have earned the right to be the learning facilitators then we need to also do our research and find the tools that are going to help kids our, our learners, kids, adults um, peel the layers and start seeing not just how it appears but how it actually functions beneath Right, uh, and this gets to the critical theory. This gets to the the hidden forces that make places the way they are. Uh, and there are several. I think there there are a couple of things that maybe I wanted to highlight. There's on page thirty five. If I may turn there, please. Uh, Amy Demarest talks about Frerian trees, and I think we ought to take a picture of this and put it where people can also see it. So I'll turn to that page. Um, the June Jordan School of Social Equity in San Francisco has a mission to include issues of social justice as part of their curriculum. The high school has a comprehensive structure in place to support students' capacity for community engagement and ability to understand the many issues that challenge communities. One part of this structure was a class that met regularly to support the service work students were doing. Okay, and then there is a picture of the tree. Uh, and this is a tree with a trunk uh, and uh, what should be roots. Um, and on the trunk is the question, what is the issue? And that's the sort of the trunk of what's being explored. And then there is fruits on the tree um, with a question, who benefits from this inequity? And there is branches of the tree with the question, what are the effects of the issue? And then I, I really like, I like this little piece, uh, fruits on the ground, who's harmed by the issue? And then for the roots, what are the root causes of the issue? Uh, so in the, the next little paragraph, uh, Amy then goes on to talk about a teacher who uses these Freyrian trees. Um, and this teacher, Chela Delgado, said the branches were the outcomes of the problem, but students had to dig down in their research to find its roots. The, quote, tree of analysis, unquote, helped students clarify what part of the issue they wanted to address in their service projects. Um, and then she provides an example of a student, of student, there was a particular one student who set out to study issues of gun violence and dropout and homelessness, and then on doing some analysis, ended up focusing on after-school programs. Right, you know, students are going down these pathways because there are no better alternatives, right? And that's the the, the kind of you know, um, the kind of work that learning facilitators and guides um, like we should hold ourselves accountable to. You know, it's one thing to see the world as it is, and it's another to develop the the, the capacity to see beneath and uh, and focus your energies on the root causes uh, and not just on the surface level issues that you see. I feel like we could, um, you and I together, could probably make a list that fills this large whiteboard of issues that need to be faced in yes. our culture, in our world, whether, it, whether it's um, rising sea levels or pollution or global warming, you know, when I get to that sort of sciency or um, inequity in schools, right. school segregation, whether it's if I'm thinking in my neighborhood, it could be about who uses parks and who doesn't, and 
who has access to what resources, right? Like I can think of countless things. We might think about the opioid epidemic, or we might think about, um, I could go on and on about why are there tires in the stream, right? right. Um, And so this feels like the work of being a citizen, and isn't that what we want for our kids, is to prepare them for the work of being a citizen. Exactly, and 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 that thread is uh, investigated and followed in one of the chapters. Uh, if I may look in the table of contents quickly, yeah. um, right? I think it's chapter six, which is local investigations build opportunity for civic engagement, and that whole piece is about citizenship and how schools are the places where. We should be learning to be citizens. By the time you leave school, you're almost of age to vote. Uh, and if you haven't been talking to, if you haven't been asking the kinds of questions that lead you to asking things like, well, who cleans the roads and who pays them? And uh, why are the tires in the water? Who's responsible for cleaning it? And why isn't it being done? Why is this side of the river cleaner than the other, that side of the river? And talking to people who do this work. If you don't know who runs your city, you know, how are you going to vote uh, and how will you be an engaged or responsible citizen? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, we could go right down that path, but I'm going to take us back to the beginning of the book. Okay. Uh, and know that we're going to get there. Um, Amy really starts the book by focusing on questions. Um, she says uh, right at the beginning, this book is about the many ways teachers organize curriculum around the significant questions students have about their world. And this is right in the preface. And I'm a librarian by training and a lover of questions. I just adore questions and can spend all my time asking better and better questions. So I really appreciate this approach. And I'm wondering about your own experience with starting with questions with your students in the classroom. Right. Um, yes. And as a first year teacher, it's a, you know, I, I haven't yet, hadn't yet, still haven't built the professional confidence to try out things that I actually believe in. I think there's a mix of what I think I should be doing and what I want to be doing. Um, Though I think I was lucky enough to meet Amy Demarest, uh, to be introduced to her, sort of the summer before I started my first year. Um, And we had a few conversations and she thought, you know, she must have I don't know, maybe liked my energy and thought, okay, we can, we should invest in this, in this guy. And so she's sort of taken me on as, um, uh, uh, as a colleague, but also as a protege of sorts, right? And so that, that gave me a lot of confidence. It gave me confidence to try things when um, a woman as esteemed as Amy uh, is Socratically asking you what's possible. Um, you know, and sort of leading me to think, oh yeah, I can, I can do this. I can just go in there and dive in with, with questions and no sense of what we, where things are going to go, because that's really what it is. It, starting with questions um, requires. Um, starting with questions is 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 necessarily imbued with trust and faith. You know that things will go where they need to go, and that you're creating a space for that to happen. Uh, and that, and you know a little a little confidence helps to you know uh, to go into that space and trust kids to come in there with you and um, 
And I, I've been I've been lucky to have good co-teachers and to have incredible kids at Winooski that I've been very comfortable diving into the waters with them. And so one of the classes that I teach is um, a newcomer science foundation uh, class. Uh, I co-teach it with uh, Jean Plas. She's my uh, English language learner's uh, sort of expert. And then I bring the STEM or the engineering and we mix it in. Um, and these kids are curious. Like these, these kids are asking big questions. So for example, just a quick example, when we were, we must have been talking about place, and we we're talking about habitats, right? Uh, and talking about what are habitats? And, and what, a neat, like what a powerful, simple concept. Habitats provide us what we need to, to survive, right? So what do we need to survive? Uh, and how do we get what we need to survive? Yeah, habitats, what a, what, a, what a neat, like simple concept. Places that provide us what we need to survive. And then we, we, we talk about what it is that we need to survive and how we get it and how our place provides it. And we talk about shelter and how school can be a shelter, our homes are shelters, our friends' homes are shelters. A tree can be a shelter from rain um, and food and where we get our food. Uh, Anyway, so we were looking, we were looking on them, we brought up uh, Google Maps and looked at Winooski and we're mapping things out, looking at where grocery stores are. And then for some reason, you know, I began zooming out. And as you zoom, we zoomed out, and maybe this is a new feature, uh, if you keep zooming out, uh, Google Maps actually shows the earth as this nice little round marble, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the kids are like, oh my God, some of them who hadn't, I don't know, who hadn't seen that before. You know, one that if you, do you like, is there a point where you can fall off? Um, why is it round? Uh, what else is round? Why roundness? Uh, how did this come to be? And they be, just they begin they begin asking questions that go to sort of the, the initial questions people asked. You know, when they were sitting down after having found food, just fundamental questions. And and my class, our class, be, be, became the place where if you had any question at all about how anything is or how anything works, you can bring it up. And I was always very upfront about things I don't know. Uh, and even things, even some things that I know, I think it was always a neat opportunity to say, well, I don't know, how might we find out? Yes. You know, um, but the, the starting with questions, the, the power there has been, you know, I, also, I, I like the phrase, uh, of ceding power to the people and in a classroom ceding power to the students. Uh, posing questions is an invitation to, st- for, to students to make the space theirs and to make the, the learning theirs. That's one thing. And then the other is that they, they, get, they get this power where they, they can, you know, they can turn their lens onto anything. You know, they can ask me why my hair is the way it is. They can ask me why my name is the way it is, what it means. They can also turn it onto the dead bird in the backyard, in our backyard, like um, why and how it got there. Or, or they can ask about why Winooski is renovating. You know, right? So there is them taking, getting to own the space and then, and then them getting to direct their curiosity where they want to direct it. Um, it feels like one, that feels like one powerful end of a continuum that I hadn't even thought of as a continuum. So I'm going to just explore this for a okay, minute. Okay, sure. And what I'm thinking about is you're working, the class you're talking about is new Americans. Yes. They're new to this country. That's right. And so they're learning this new place. Exactly. And 
and they need to understand this new place, Yes. right? And I'm thinking about my own experience as somebody who's lived in Vermont for 20 years now. Um, in a workshop with Amy, she asked us to draw a map of a place that was important to us, and I drew a map of my favorite place where I live, Lowell Lake. I spend a lot of time walking around the lake, mm-hmm. swimming in the lake, kayaking on the lake. And uh, we brought, we had our maps, and she asked us to sort of put hearts in significant emotional places, or some sort of symbol. I used a heart. Mm-hmm. Um, she asked us to put symbols um, around uh, places where there might be tension, Ooh. right? Like places where there might be conflict. She asked us to put, and, and somebody drowned in this lake um, a couple uh, last summer. And so it was also like places of pain. Mm-hmm. So I put, I marked that spot as mm-hmm. a place of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about that lake, but then at the end she asked us, what are our questions? And all these questions bubbled up that I'd never asked in this place that I know like the back of my hand. My goodness. Right? And so I think about the continuum for me is about people who are brand new to this place who need to know things for their mm-hmm. own survival, right. for their own, like to get what they need right. in order to thrive here. And then people who've lived in the same place maybe much longer than I've lived in Vermont Mm -hmm. and know a place so well and need to see it with new eyes and need to ask questions about it to know it differently. That's right. That's right. That is a beautiful visual of, yeah, that continuum. Um, I also just so appreciate that line you said about... um, I don't know the answer, let's find out. How can we find out? And that's like the number one librarian thing I ever said. I don't know, let's find out together, right? And um, I feel like that was my biggest tool as a librarian. So deep appreciation for how you use that in your classroom. That's right, and and I think questions create, make make it um, um, necessitate that because you know, as the, as the students get bolder, as the, the questioning is encouraged, it quickly goes into areas where the expertise is not in the room. You need, you know, um, yeah. So what I also love about this book is that it has these real vignettes, and I'm using you sort of as a vignette okay. to say what's your experience, so I hope that's okay, but um, there's also some really lovely vignettes from uh, teachers, several of them from Vermont, um, people that we know, that we right. might know. I know Kate Toland is one, and on page four, um, Amy writes a vignette about Kate's social studies class with ninth graders, um, and she talks about, en- Kate talks about engaging students with real-world problems, and she says that the world isn't, and I love this little quote, already done. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and I, I really love that approach of thinking about the world as not done. Yes. As not like a known thing that kids need. You just you just learn the knowledge. Mm-hmm. But as this place that we can interact with and improve or, right. or change or um, uh, participate in its That's right. doneness. And <laughs> it's That's becoming right. more done. And um, so... And the real-world problems of of communities. And I'm just wondering if you have any examples from your own practice or from Winooski yeah. of, um, of kids participating in, um, in tackling real-world problems. Right. Um, there is, I was, when I walked here, I was reading this little article um, on pa- uh, Paolo Freire. Um, and there is a little quote, there's a little quote by him that I think powerfully resonates with um, what uh, Katie is saying there. 
Uh, I would like to quickly grab it and see. Please. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, this is actually this is actually an it's the abstract uh, by from the article the paper Paolo Freire, a revolutionary pedagogue by Dr. Narasinga, P. Seal. Here's how the the abstract reads. Um, so Paulo Freire's uh, theory of education stands squarely in, on his conviction in the capacity of men to create. Okay, so this could be a little, you know, capacity of people to create as well as reconstruct their cultural reality. He thus denounces the conventional education designed to dole out the cultural values of the dominant and the dominator classes to the dominated and the oppressed. Instead of the traditional banking concept of education, Freire pleads for a pedagogical method that will, through the, quote, problematization, unquote, of reality, result in men's conscientiza uh, con conscientization. It's a difficult word for me to say. But, you know, just raising consci uh, consciousness and lead to eventually his true or their true existential freedom. Um, so the, the 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 quote of the world not being not being done, you know, it's not just a cute you know thing um, or um, you know or just an interesting realization. Like the world not being done is fundamental to education, and it's fundamental for my students. The world is a terrible place for a lot of people. Right. If it was done, <laughs> then God help us. <laughs> you know, I hope it's not done because there's so much that needs to be done. Uh, and so, you know, when I think back again to my to my education, which presented the world as something to be studied and interpreted, but not something to be acted upon and changed. Uh, you know, it's great for people who are doing well in the status quo, which was most of my colleagues. But for people who are fighting, engaged in the struggle for their freedoms right um, um, and there is and which just if you indulge me on this tangent there is a, two different ways of thinking about freedom that I think are very important one which is the legal freedoms that we have we can vote we have freedoms of free speech but then there is like the freedom that's freedom from maybe freedom from fear freedom from right um, so on on the 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 the, the need for the world to be seen as um, as something that's in construction is very important to me in working with my students. Um, I think, you know, one could say, living in the U.S., we have a lot of freedoms, we have a lot of rights, um, and there is this understanding or this multidimensionality to freedom that I like thinking about, where. Yes, you have the right to vote, and maybe you have the right to free speech and uh, and to be safe in this country and all that. Uh, and yet, if I need, if I'm being paid a minimum wage or don't have a job, um, all of a sudden I'm very limited. There is so little that I can do, right? Um, a lot of my a lot of the freedoms and the rights that I have kind of go out of the window when you know legally I may be free but then if I can't afford to take my kids if I can't afford the house in a 
in a place where my students can maybe get a better education or if I can't afford to get out of a place where my students are, my, 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 my kids are, and I'm talking as a parent, um, are exposed to uh, violence or whatever, then, you know, how free am I, right? Um, and so, you know, so, so the idea of looking, problematizing, problematizing the, the, your environment and looking at what, what's, what's not working for me uh, and then making that the object of your study, uh, I feel like is, is a big part of what attracted me to Paulo Freire, right? He's all about waking you up to the reality and questioning everything, uh, not accepting anything of what it is because accepting it benefits the ruling class and the people who are currently benefiting at you. And so th 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 that idea, that very simple idea of the world is not done that Kate uh, uh, shares is a revolutionary, it's, it's a revolutionary concept. I want to build on it a little bit because Amy also draws on Freire's notion that students should be, of all ages should be taught to read the world. Yeah. World is text. And I wanted you, so thinking about not only should we be working with students to participate in the world because it's not done, because it's no. still under construction, because right. where would we be if this was done? Right. But also um, that part of that work is helping our young people and maybe our fully grown people yes, too, yes. to learn to, to read the world as text. What does that phrase, read the world, mean to you? Yes, and this, and this uh, kind of gets back to, forms a nice little loop back to the freery trees that we talked about, that you know there is going out into the world and seeing, just looking and creating, holding space for questions, authentic questions by which I mean, you know, students coming from different places get to ask what they're moved to be curious about. Uh, you know, but to then read the world as text, to me, uh, adds this analytical dimension of uh, then questioning, not you know, why are things the way they are. Uh, there is a nice little example in the book somewhere where uh, Amy says, uh, or someone she's quoting says, you know, it's nice to take your kids out to go and clean the river. It's a very nice activity. Uh, it becomes an altogether different activity experience when the kids start asking, well, why is there crap in our river? Where is it coming from? Yeah, totally. And that pulls us to this other notion of um, uh, there's a good bit in the book about um, what it means to have a sense of place and um, about being responsible in one's where one lives yeah. and living well in that community mm -hmm. that is tied up in this, I think. And, um, and especially, and my librarian self smiles again at this, the idea of stories of a place. And I love the like many layers of stories you can explore in a place. So thinking about um, these stories can be historical, who mm -hmm. lived here before us, mm -hmm. right? Even going back to uh, before colonization, mm -hmm. who was here, mm -hmm. who's lived here? Um, what people does this land belong to? Or did it belong to at other times? Um, the geology of a place, which is a story, right? right. Like you can share how a place shaped and formed um, scientifically. Um, there might be political or cultural stories of a place 
Um, and, and those could be historical, those could be contemporary. And then I think about um, students' own stories of a place and then seeing a place through the eyes of other people and what their stories might tell. And the example that came to mind when you were talking earlier for me comes from Ruha Benjamin, uh, mm. who spoke at the Rolling Conference a couple times. And she talked about, she made me see a story of place that I hadn't seen before, and I see it all over now, which is when you're in a place, um, I was recently in St. John, Canada, in New Brunswick, and I was noticing this same story, which is who are the park benches for? Mm. And when, they, when you create barriers so people can't lay on benches, who are you excluding and who are you inviting in? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's another way to see place, to learn to read place um, and uh, through story, really. The story that Bench is saying is that some people are welcome here and others aren't. That's right. And it's... It's um, yeah, that's nice. It's a good. That's a a nice. Um, um, it makes me think about how a lot of this, you know, by learning to read your local, you you build muscle for reading other places where you may find yourself, um, and how, right now, just asking the same question, um, even when you find yourself transported, as. You pointed out I have been right moved lived in a bunch of different places when you learn to ask and and pose questions of a place um, it's 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 a gift that you, you you can take with you whatever yeah, whatever you find yourself right that those skills are transferable even <laughs> if you're spending time looking at the pond in your backyard right mm -hmm. even if your plate the place you're exploring um, I love when I saw Amy recently, she talked about how concrete spaces are still places, even if it's the parking lot, mm -hmm. right? Like that wherever, that the skills you're using to look deeply at a place, to learn the stories of a place, to, quest, to ask questions about a place, though that skill, that investigation, that critical thinking that you've talked a mm -hmm. lot about is transportable even if I were to move to Alaska. Absolutely. Even if you go back to Rwanda, the skills you have Isn't travel it? with you. You know, and you know, this being Vermont, it's 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 fitting to talk about transferable skills. Uh, since I mean, Winooski has made a huge shift to really just teaching, focusing everything we do around that, uh, and. Um, yeah, and, and, and so the, and this approach, the place-based education, um, that it helps you build muscles that you can then really yeah, take with you wherever you go, um, that you, you are learning. You're not just developing a sense of place as a citizen of here. You're, yeah, you're learning these critical skills that you can, you can apply in many different domains. Um, Problem solving, communication, collaboration, all of those function in good place-based learning as far as I could tell. While looking at this book, I kept thinking, oh, there's another one, there's another one. That's right, that's right. And I, there, there is a sense of, uh, in my um, engineering at Winooski is under creativity. We have these six graduation expectations. Okay? Um, you know, uh, I think we have creativity, communication, uh, we have critical thinking. We we also have well-being and um, uh, persistence, right? Um, and the beauty of 
like learning, having authentic learning experiences that are grounded in what's around us, is that it just quickly ties all these things together. You know, I feel like even as we're progressing towards this more, um, this better way of looking at learning through these, you know, bigger transferable skills that our kids will use wherever they go uh, and through old age, right? Creativity and persistence, right? These are not things you graduate from. Um, um, you know, even as we move towards that, you know, we're still struggling with the siloed nature of how things used to be. And I think we've been, some of that has carried over to this. But when you, when, when, when we follow students' questions, it really quickly starts breaking down the barriers between all these, all these silos. Uh, and I find myself struggling, right? Like, well, can we ask these questions about, um, can we go into sociopolitical issues in, in a science class? And what is the place, what is it, where is the place for asking about, what is the place for justice and fairness in science and all these things? Right? Yeah, because they all come together quickly. Um, when you contacted me and I asked you to be a guest on the podcast, I don't know if you remember this, I was on a learning journey in Hawaii. And uh-huh. um, uh, they're doing a lot of place and culture-based learning in Hawaii. And place and culture are really so tied together in Hawaii that they go hand in hand. And I was thinking of an engineering task that first graders do there. Okay. And... Um, and so, and I was thinking, what would this be in Vermont? And I'm sure we could come up with some things. But the task there is that in there, um, there are these invasive fish. They're little. They're like minnow-sized, I okay. think. And first graders are, once they learn about this ecosystem, right, mm-hmm. they're tasked with the idea of, of creating something that captures these invasive fish, that can okay. capture just the invasive fish, right? So they have to do all of this exploration That's right. in order to create, to engineer mm-hmm. a tool um, to, that will... Capture just the invasive species. Right, and, and invasive species are a, a, a universal problem, That's right? exactly right. And so what would it look like to apply this idea of not just noticing which species are invasive, but mm-hmm. what do we do about it and that's do right. some problem solving around it? Yeah, and, and, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's the maybe the engineering leap, right? For me, um, where we, we, we see, we think critically, and, and then we take action. Yeah. So the other thing I love about Amy's book and this approach, and I'm going to turn to page nine, where I think I can quote something specific, is the way that it is strengths-based about students' culture, right? And so um, in past podcasts, we've talked a little bit about how schools are pretty middle-class places, Mm -hmm. um, and they can, they function well for the dominant culture, right? Like if you're um, in your schools, if you're white and your family went there, right? Like where you were, uh, where you went to high school. Right. Um, in many of our schools, I grew up working poor, and um, I often had to sort of make a choice between the culture of school and the culture of my family and mm-hmm. my home. And um, I'm not sure everybody has that experience. But what I love about this pro- approach is that, at, regardless of students' culture, it asks them to bring that in as strength. And so on page nine, this quote. Um, This awareness helps teachers design curriculum with questions that resonate with a student's experience, their lived experience. Mm -hmm. 
This is most critical for young people whose school experience continually underlines differences or perceived deficits. According to Nieto, teachers need to build on what the children do have rather than lament what they do not have. When the content is more aligned with the truth of students' lives, they gain tools that help them gain a voice in their community. And I just think about what school, how school would have been different if I could have brought some of the strengths of my family that were not celebrated um, in the classroom, right? Or that were ignored or invisible in the classroom experience. And um, any time that we sort of bring an appreciative lens to what students bring, to the table, I feel like is a positive thing for not just for young people, but also for us as teachers because it engages them more fully. I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, I, I, um, one, um, one story this reminds me of in um, my science foundation class once more is that as students were asking all these questions about the very beginning, the Big Bang, and the um, how everything came to be, as we were looking at videos and exploring the Big Bang uh, on a class that was probably supposed to be about habitats, um, you know, some of the kids were very adamant that no, you know, Allah created all this, you know, our God created all this, this is what our parents tell us, who are you to tell us different? Uh, and I made a decision, I hadn't thought about this, I made a decision to say, you know, there are many, many different types, different stories of how the world came to be, right? There is the science story, that's one story, right? There is Allah creating the world, that's another story. And there is, you know, the God of Rwanda in my culture. We have a story of how the world came to be. With different people, different cultures have come up with different stories for how the world came to be. Uh, and, you know, I felt good about sort of placing science alongside other stories, other creation stories that these students are coming coming to me with. And, you know, I think a big part of this, what I would call humanizing education that sees the humanity in people instead of um, seeing them as empty vessels to be filled with information, is that yeah, you, we have to come as we are and we learn as, as, as we are. And our humanity is very important and what am I doing in a classroom if I'm going to shut down the kids' beliefs, right, and say, no, what you're learning is false, science is this and that. No, no. Um, we're, we're complicated beings. We can hold multiple stories, places, like we were saying, hold multiple stories. And uh, who gets to say what's right and what's wrong is just power dynamics. Um, I love that you put it so plainly. Like, like it or not, we come with our whole lived experience. Our students come with lived experience. And we can choose to see that as a deficit and wish they were empty vessels. But that's not going to happen. And, no. and the only person we're harming is them and ourselves. Or we can choose to see that as strength that we can use to build on, right? And, and then everybody flourishes, right? It's our choice as teachers in, in the classroom to decide whether we embrace students' lived yes. experience and help them develop what they've already, you know, to, to apply what they know, what they know. To, to the world. That's right. And, yeah, and I, yeah I, I absolutely would not want any kid coming to me as an empty vessel. You know, you, you, just the story you just shared of uh, your childhood, 
right? In your experience, are answers to some of the challenges you're facing, your family is facing, your community is facing, right? And if school should be a place where you can go back and read the text and make it better, um, by God, right? So I, I do, I do want you coming with your experiences and then hopefully acquiring some critical tools. Yeah. Yeah. This text also addresses this idea of a hidden curriculum, which I think is related. And, yeah. and often the hidden curriculum in school is compliance. Some people are good at school, right? But compliance doesn't prepare our young people for life in a, in a democratic community, right? Like we aren't living in a world where um, most kids are going to go off to factories and be compliant little factory workers, right? And so when, if we want to prepare students to be the community that we want to see in the world, We've got to move beyond compliance because compliance isn't going to get us there. No. It, it feels like um, it's not neutral. Schooling isn't neutral. Sorry, did I just step on a soapbox? No, you did not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, no, you, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. No, I, 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 appreciate, I, just, I, just, I appreciate the passion. And, uh, and I agree wholeheartedly. Um, Oh uh, yeah, I, uh, it drives me nuts uh, seeing. It drives me nuts seeing lines in the hallway. Uh, it drives me nuts seeing kids, little kids, holding one rope, and there, there, there are just a lot of little things, a lot of little things in, in, through which we train people to just stay on their line, stay in their lane, yeah. maintain the status quo, play by the rules, yeah. um, and and yet. Right and and yet the survival of our our species on this planet uh, depends on breaking the rules that we have, on thinking outside the box, on um, and so let's <laughs> see we're simultaneously shooting ourselves in the foot as we're you know trying to save ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that so, was so well said. I agree with you. So I want to move, um, we've talked a lot about the start of this book and the intentions behind it and mm -hmm. why. Um, but I, I love this, um, I'm looking at page 42 and pa page 43, and um, when Amy gets into the meat of it, not just the why and what it can look like, she outlines these curricular elements of local learning. And I think oftentimes thinking about place-based learning or other powerful pedagogies, the place where we get lost in schools is tying it to the curriculum, tying yeah. it to standards and proficiencies, right? And so um, she gives us these four curricular elements of local learning, and she talks about how um, that the boundaries of these are not fixed and that they can take up different uh, amount of space, that they're often mixed. And she has this little quote, the beauty is in the mix. Mm. And so I wondered if we could just outline those four and then I have an example and maybe you do too of what that looks like in practice. Okay. So the four are, well, let's take turns. Do you wanna talk about the first one? Sure. Um, so personal connections are the foundations of all learning. And how can I better relate school to my students' life experiences? And so, so this is the one lens that a teacher should have in thinking about your curricular intentions, right? Thinking about um, how you can, how I can better as a teacher relate school to my students' life experiences. Right. 
Um, so that's part of like knowing students well and figuring out that's like that's like going into the playground because that's their lived experience when they're small right. or into the community, right? And like connecting with what they know and see every day, the things that are. That's right, and I've I've loved you know simple things like where does our like where does our water come from our drinking water, you know go back to your home and maybe look at look around the house and come back tomorrow with your five most valuable most valued possessions, mm-hmm. you know like a day one activity and tell us about these different pieces, yeah. right? And for my students, all my students who are recent arrivals, immigrants, and you know they don't have much. You know, but I remember myself coming here when I was 13, there were a few things that I'd held on to. It may have been a piece of paper from a friend from Zambia. It may have been like an old T-shirt that's all ripped, but I can't separate myself from it because it's just about all that I have left, yeah. you know, and just um, having, bring, making, bring those into the classroom having students share that those bits about themselves and starting to create this web of relationships amongst the students. Um, and relevance, really. It's really like, like how is this relevant to your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. So the second one is local investigations deepen subject understanding. How can I help students better understand how this big idea works in the real world? And so that big idea could be a social studies big idea or a science big idea or a language arts big idea. But how does whatever it is work in in the world, not just in the textbook or not just in the classroom? Right. Um, So combining place and subject. And, um, okay, so the, the, the third one is local investigations build holistic understanding of places, right? And the driving question there is, how can I help students better understand this place? Mm-hmm. Um, right, and, and I think this is the beauty of choosing maybe a big question of, uh, you mentioned places like, who was here before? Right, who's lived here, and then you know holding that question as we walk around downtown Winooski and asking those questions: What was here before? Yeah. Um, um, right, and that would be the social studies question. But you can also talk about how have machines shaped Winooski, yeah. right, and take that angle. I love that it. This speaks to the complexity of places. And, and I think that sometimes what gets in the way is how complex places are, right? right? It's not simple. Yes. You have to really dig in. Yeah, and right, and this gets to the story that you sh- your story that you shared about, you know, uh, drawing a place that you go to in your memories, where you grew up and spent a lot of time. And then just with a few prompts of place, you know, yeah. with emotion, with tension, with pain, and then questions you have about it. All of, and these are very generative questions. Yeah. Um, uh, right? And all of a sudden, something that was very familiar yeah. has so many dimensions. So the fourth one is, local investigations build opportunity for civic engagement. How can I help students better understand themselves and their possible futures? Um, this one really reminds me of service learning. Okay. Like, how do we have impact on place? Um, and, and it also gets to that, um, that idea of the world isn't done. Mm-hmm. Like, what's our role? How do we contribute? How do we be responsible citizens of this place? 
Um, That's right. And it build and it, and all these things. I mean, they they do build on each other. Once you've, you know, once you've helped students and better understand place, and they've started to critically think about it, yeah. um, then it's just you know you're essentially you're prepped, you're primed to yes. to do something. So I'm gonna tell a story that I think and try to parse out maybe with your help. Okay. Um, uh, how this um, how this might play out. So I'm gonna talk about a place called Kaala Farm in Hawaii. It's in the Waianae Coast, and um, uh, and so um, students go there um, with this organization called Place and. Um, uh, to connect personally. Now these are native Hawaiian students and part of what they do there, so when I think about this personal connections are the foundation of all learning, how can I better relate school to my students lived experience. Um, these students are native Hawaiian and they go there to um, grow kalo, which is a native Hawaiian food. Kalo okay. is um, uh, what poi is made from. It's taro, right? And so okay. Um, they go to this place and they dig these like um, watery trenches that the, I'm getting all the nomenclature wrong, sorry Hawaiians. <laughs> um, they dig um, these trenches and the, the kalo grows in these and so they okay. get muddy, they get dirty, they mm -hmm. move rocks around, they're mm -hmm. in the soil, right, and they're growing kalo. And then they might also, um, kalo, you have to pound the, the kalo to make the poi, they have to grind it, and okay. they have these special boards, and so they might do that there as well. So it's food, it's the food of their ancestors, mm -hmm. it's their native food, mm -hmm. and they're using native language, the native Hawaiian language, and um, so it's their lived experience, right? It's their family, they have deep connections right. to this, their culture. And so that gets to that personal connections are the foundation of all learning. It's in their place. They're um, they're learning the food of their ancestors. They're growing it. They're right like it's in their community. And then when I think about local investigations deep in subject understanding, there's a lot going on there with subject understanding. Right? They're learning um, about um, the science of growing things. Right? And the kalo the um, needs water. And so part of what they learn is the story of this place. The Waianae Coast was cut off from water when the plantations arrived. Mm. And so when the pineapple plantations and other plantations arrived, when Westerners arrived, right, when Hawaii became an American state, um, the water was diverted. Before that, it had been shared, right? Yeah. The water's diverted, and this place is no longer green. And what they have to do is bring back the water. And what ends up happening in this place with these students is they end up writing, writing a water resolution, which they read at local government, right? And why water? They're, they're investigating this deep question about who owns the water. Who owns the water? Who owns the water? Who has the right to the water? And they're bringing right. back the water in order to grow their traditional crop, in order to make this place green again. Right? Wow. And so then that gets to like, that's that also, how can I help students better understand this place? So not only have they learned the history of this place, the history of Hawaii, the science of growing, right now they're into this place where they're understanding holistically all these interconnections between the science and the history and their people and their culture, right? right? And then they're doing something about it. The civic engagement piece, and I'll embed a video in the transcript, is them delivering 
their water resolution, which they wrote. So we're mm-hmm. pulling in English language arts, mm-hmm. which they wrote and they communicated, they delivered all those transferable skills and communication to their local government. And it's right. just such a beautiful project in a beautiful place that really like shows how all of these things are interconnected. That's right. And they so naturally come together that you kind of have to... I know it's the skill of... Um, a teacher to plan and, and take a step back and envision how all these things are going to come together and the, the transferable skills are going to be met. You know, but a big part of me is just um, once you've honed on to a question like who owns the water and just, you know, I would just love to let that go and see where that goes and, you know, be present, you know, in planting and harvesting and making the food and you know sitting around while we're eating and talking about what happened to this place and right getting into the history and having all that be one steady stream of learning and but also of young people trying to understand their place better right and getting to understand what it used to be and how it became the way it is and and realizing that they can do something about it and actually moving to do something and and then that's just the beginning as soon as these kids write that resolution and present it, that's just the beginning of their lives as citizens in that town. Yeah. Um, and these kids uh, were not empowered learners necessarily, right? And so what I think we sometimes miss in thinking like, oh, but kids need, we need to make sure to march them through these standards. You can tie the standards to this learning and have much more meaningful experiences. They may take longer, it might be messier, right? But have much more meaningful experiences for kids who would otherwise be checked out. Right. Who aren't gonna get there That's in, right. in the more traditional way. Yeah, and, and I think this, I mean, that just, what you just said brought to mind, uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, uh, don't let school get in the way of your education. Yes. Was it him? Because I think often we let, we let school get in the way of education. <laughs> and uh, I mean, these students getting to, yeah, these students getting to, to claim the piece of themselves that um, was maybe lost with a diversion of the water. Is there anything more fundamental? Right? Is there anything more fundamental? And, you know, I, I think, and I enjoy the tension maybe, and maybe I'll um, grow around that. It's a different area of growth of thinking about, the, but how are they going to get the standards? But how are they going to get the standards? You know, I think far more important far more important that these kids see, develop that sense of place. Where am I? Who am I here? Right? And, and uh, how does this place take care of me? And how can I take care of this place so that it can continue doing the work that it does? And to me, what that means is that the standards are in service of this deeper thing, which is life in the world, like, yeah. right? Like that the standards have yes. greater purpose and meaning. That's right. I think in Vermont, you know, one of the things I'm concerned about with climate change and global warming, one of the many things is the maple trees, Okay. right? Like we have this concern that, the ma- we, that we, our climate change may change enough that maple trees no longer grow in Vermont. Oh my goodness. And what does that mean for Vermonters, right? Where maple is a big industry, it's a big part of our cultural, yeah. um, the, one of the 
the cultural foundations of us right. as contemporary Vermonters. And so that would be an investigation, it would seem to me, that could tie into the standards, the science standards, the NCSS yes. standards or proficiencies, right? Yes. Tie into English language arts such as you write about it and explore it, right? Read about it. Right. Um, get us into place, right? Like that could draw us to history. What's the history of maple sugaring in right. this country? Where did it begin? Who's, you know, where do we, how does this play into our culture? And get us involved in the world in it, a meaningful way. It pulls in the whole world. I mean, that question, that question pulls in the whole world. You know, climate change, yeah. it pulls in the whole world, understanding it and uh, educating the local community on it and it, what, what its impact on our local yeah. culture and sense of place will be, right? Siri, I have this notion that if you and I spent a day together, we could create a whole forest of uh, prairie trees. <laughs> I think I, I was envisioning, I was actually envisioning a space where we can have a lot of prairie trees with Maybe people can put their issue, and then we can crowdsource what people think are the root causes. Where people, you know, just having them in public with markers and chalk there, so that we can crowdsource. Oh, we, I love the way you think. We need that. We need that forest, <laughs> prairie and trees. Listeners, we're interested in what issues you would put on the trunk of your prairie and trees. In fact, as this episode goes live, maybe Thierry and I will run a little Twitter chat asking yes. you what's at the what's on the trunk of your prairie and tree. What prairie and trees your your students want to explore. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any other thoughts about Amy's approach to place-based learning in this marvelous little book no. with so full of wisdom? I, I uh, you know, I, I can close for myself by saying that I, I came across this little book maybe like a day before I was introduced to Amy. We went into Phoenix Library, Phoenix Bookstore, and my partner was Whitney was getting was looking for books and I always go to the education section first and then I saw this it said place based I never heard of the concept then I began flipping through it and I was seeing all these things that for me start to pull together what I think are my foundational uh, learning philosophies Um, critical pedagogy uh, pedagogy of the press by Paulo Freire uh, which is just simply put about humanizing education, human education, that if you're, right, human education that validates people as they come. And then there is constructionism, um, which built off of uh, Piaget's constructivism, the, you know, the idea that we build our learning from our, the mate, our natural mate, material, the material from which we build the next learning is, uh, is cultural material, what we have, what we're showing up with. And social. Right? We build yeah. it together. Everything. And, and the social, it's social learning. And it's like everything, every, yeah, everything that I'm going to build learning with in your classroom when I come to your class is what I already have. So take time to figure out what, I, what I'm coming with. Uh, and then the, other, then the other philosophy that she was pulling from uh, what, what, that I feel like this builds on is also uh, Maria Montessori, uh, the idea of the idea of um, humans being these self-constructing machines, like self-constructing beings. From birth, you know, you don't have to, you know, from birth we're moving, we're curious, we're, we're trying to figure out the world. And that's just how we've evolved to learn, you know. Uh, and, so, and so 
we remain the same beings, you know, and so <clears throat> if whenever I find myself as a teacher trying to think of like, how can I help, how can I make, how can I create learning, how can I get this kid to do this, I know that I'm doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Because this kid, this child, this person is naturally developing towards their star, their star. They're, they're developing towards something, they have interests, they have vectors through, on which they're growing. And if what I'm teaching is not on their path or in their interest, then I need to get with the program and you know and figure out where they're growing towards, and and, and place just this philosophy, this place-based education, the way uh, Amy put it, just brought all those things together, uh, and uh, the next day we met and I told her about it. I didn't buy the book because I wasn't working at the time, but she sent me a copy and and uh, yeah. So I, I just I would I would my last, I would say uh, find the book or get the book or find one of us and talk to us about the book. Mm-hmm. Uh. It's such a delight to talk to you, looking across at you and watching um, the way you just combine the words about students learning with the word vector, and I just think that just sums you up as a person who has the brain of an engineer and a philosopher and a humanist in this really lovely way. It's been such Thank a delight you. to um, hear you think aloud and to, um, to socially construct new understanding for myself alongside you. Oh, the pleasure was mine. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this and I hope we can have a couple more. Um, um, yeah, thank you for, yeah, no, thank you for this conversation. It's rejuvenating and I hope to carry this energy into the, my second, my second year. Good luck in your second year winning ski. Thank you. Wish you all the best. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Tiri Mugabo Uwilingi Imana for appearing on the show and talking with me about place-based curriculum design. If you're looking for a copy of place-based curriculum design, check your local library. Deep appreciation to Audrey Holman, our fabulous audio engineer, and so much more. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. that you can hear the rain. Can you hear the rain? Turns out it's more than drizzle. Okay, I'm going to do that again and then I'm going to do the outro. And it's raining harder, but I'm going to give it another go because maybe you have a special rain filter. Who knows? This episode is all about questions. Why are we here? Who was here before us?